1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to the end of this series considering what we do week in and week out here in this place. I pray that you would not just inform our minds, but that you would enlarge our hearts, that you would make us better worshipers, that even as we stare into the deepest mysteries of our faith, Lord, even if we can't understand the calculus, I pray that our hearts would be stirred, our heads would be lifted up, that we might see our help in Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> when Andrew Forstoffel was 23 years old, he left his home in suburban Philadelphia with a bag of beef jerky, a small backpack, and a mandolin. And his goal was to walk across the United States, a 4,000-mile journey. It took him 11 months to complete. And along the way, he met and was sustained by a host of people. That little bag of jerky wasn't going to get him very far. 
Right out of the gate, just two hours into his journey, he stumbled across a migrant camp. Hispanic workers who had set up camp behind a mall that he had gone to every day practically of his teenage life. And he sat and he heard their story and they shared their food with him. Later on his journey, he had dinner with a woman whose husband had committed suicide after coming home from war. He met up with ranchers in Texas, with gold miners in Death Valley. A van of tourists stopped to talk to him and gave him money for dinner. He couldn't complete this long journey without the kindness and support of people along the way, people who fed him, people who gave him a place to sleep. Eventually, even there came a number of people that would walk with him. By the time he reached the Pacific Ocean, people he had met from all over the United States gathered there on the beach and celebrated with him as he stepped into the water and completed his journey. I think there's an analogy here, of course, with our own experience as Christians, because you and I are engaged in our own journey. We are engaged in our own long pilgrimage toward the New Jerusalem. And on that journey, we also have to be sustained, because that pilgrimage can be breathtakingly beautiful, but it can also be filled with danger and loneliness. And so people come up alongside of us us and they seem to step into our lives at, at just the right moment, with just the right word, with just the right support, with just what we need to take another step forward. This morning, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. And as we consider the supper that God lays out for us every week, I want you to see it as his own sustaining grace toward you every step of this pilgrim journey that you are on. The heavenly food that God provides for us is our primary means of nourishment as we take step after step toward Zion. This morning, I want to look at three different things, three different ways to explain this supper. This is a supper of participation, this is a supper of consecration, and this is a supper of proclamation. Participation, consecration, and proclamation. We begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. When Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? You've heard me say before that that word for participation is the Greek word for fellowship, koinonia, one of those Greek words that you should probably be familiar with. The ancient Greek writers said that koinonia conveys concepts like community and friendship, sharing and intimacy. In fact, they would even speak of a koinonia of marriage, a koinonia of life, a bond by which two people became one flesh. Paul is using this vivid language so that we will realize that when we drink from this cup or eat this bread, we are being united 
to the one who gave his body and blood as a sacrifice for our sin. I don't usually recommend Eugene Peterson's The Message uh, translation, but he nails it here. He says, when we drink the cup of blessing, aren't we taking into ourselves the blood, the very life of Christ? And isn't it the same with the loaf of bread we break and eat? Don't we take into ourselves the body, the very life of Christ? This is why as Reformed people we speak of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. Because when we eat the bread, when we drink the cup, we have fellowship with Christ's own body and blood. His body and blood convey a benefit to you and me. We receive, you hear me say this often as I stand behind the table, we receive all of the benefits of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. The Holy Spirit gives us Christ's own body and blood. What Jesus told his disciples, they had to eat and drink in John 6. The thing that sent the crowds running for the hills because they couldn't understand it. That's what the Holy Spirit gives to us. And he gives it to us so that our faith is strengthened. So that we're equipped for our pilgrim journey. He enables us to fight against sin. He gives us eyes to see God's love for us in Christ. The supper unites us vertically to our risen Christ. But because we are also one body, the body of Christ, the supper also unites us horizontally in Christ. We become a supernatural community of faith at this table. Now this is Paul's entire point in his teaching on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians. Paul doesn't sit down to give us a theological treatise on the Lord's Supper. In fact, it's one of the most frustrating things about being a Christian pastor. The Bible is not a systematic theology. And because the Bible is not a systematic theology, we've got to go to the point that the authors are trying to make in order for us to understand it, and then we pull out from there the theology that undergirds it. Well, the point that Paul is making is that the church in Corinth is a mess, and they don't even like one another anymore. And yet they continue to gather at this table without any real understanding of what's happening. And so he's telling them, listen, all of these divisions that you have, those are superseded by your coming together at this table. Much has been written on the divisions that exist in our culture. We can look around American culture and see in very clear reality the kind of divisions that the early church also struggled with. We are experts, it seems, in speaking the language of us versus them. But how do we move from us versus them to we? Paul says that we are made one body because there is one bread. I want you to think about that for a second. You are not united to one another 
because you have done the hard work of overcoming the irritating personality of the person sitting next to you. You're not united to me because I have some rare gift to bring people together. We, the many, are one body because we, the many, partake of one bread. This very act of eating and drinking, this heavenly meal with one another, unites us in ways that we cannot create on our own. This is the point Paul makes in chapter 11, verse 18. You heard me mention this at our Monday, Thursday feast and service. Paul says, when you come together as the church... And the point that he's making here is that the church is constituted at the table of the Lord. Where do we come together as the church? Here, around this table. Not just the church universal as it exists around the world, but right here, you and me here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, we who are many and diverse, we who are scattered Monday through Saturday, become one body as we partake of one bread. Friends, the Bible calls us into deep community with one another. But before we can bear with one another, before we can forgive one another, before we can admonish one another, there actually has to be a one another. There actually has to be a group that you belong to, a group that you look at and say, well, it's not pretty, but you're mine, and I'm yours. That's created through the supper. And it's not going to make it, we're not going to be made up of, of people who all look alike, of people who all educate their children in the same way, of people who all vote in the same way. But when our church reflects the broad variety of the kingdom of God, that's when we will know that a supernatural work has occurred. Because we won't have created a club out of our own power we will have been made part of the one body of Christ. It's a supper of participation. This is also a supper of consecration. And by that I mean there are ethical implications to what we do when we gather together at the Lord's table. Paul says in chapter 10, verse 21, that we cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now you need to understand the cultural context in which Paul is writing this. These early Christians are surrounded by, and they have been rescued from, idolatry. And not just the kind of idolatry that, that we talk about today, Making an idol out of your relationships, making an idol out of your work, making an idol out of your physical beauty. Oh no, these were like real life idols that had amazing temples built up around them. And those temples hosted festivals and dinners that were partly acts of worship toward the demon gods that they worshipped but they also were acts of worship that united, interestingly, the people of that town to one another. 
They were a way for that town, that community, to celebrate their identity as a group of people. Now, earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul allows for some accommodation to that surrounding pagan culture. He says, hey, if you eat some meat that has been sacrificed to one of those idols, that's okay. But here he says there are some lines that need to be drawn. There is a world of difference between going to the butcher and buying some meat that you know had been sacrificed at one of those pagan festivals and sitting down at the pagan festival to eat that meat. There's a world of difference between eating and participating. And he says it is not possible for Christians to participate in a banquet to a pagan god and then come to church on Sunday and sincerely give thanks to God in the Lord's Supper. Now again, you can't appreciate the seriousness of this unless you understand how central, how common, how important those banquets were to that culture. It would be akin to you telling your mom, yeah, I'm not coming home for Thanksgiving this year. It would be like telling your boss, hey, thanks for inviting me out to dinner with all of the important people in the firm, but I've got better things to do. All of a sudden, you are on the outs with the most important people in your life. To decline could be downright dangerous for you. Paul's point is captured by Sinclair Ferguson when he says that communion with Jesus only takes place where there is consecration to Jesus. Communion with Jesus only takes place where there is consecration to Jesus. When you eat this bread, when you drink this cup, you are acting you are declaring your faith, your dedication to Jesus. And this is one of the reasons why in our church, in Reformed churches, only those who have professed their faith are welcome to this table. Our confessional standards list a series of subjective acts that you and I are called to exercise when we hold that piece of bread, when we hold that cup of wine in our hands. We're supposed to, our larger catechism says, to examine ourselves, to engage in serious meditation and fervent prayer. Our confession of faith says that we're supposed to remember Christ's sacrifice. Also, we're supposed to dedicate ourselves to the engagement of all of the duties that we owe to Jesus. And we're supposed to testify and renew in us our thankfulness to God. Friends, this means that when you are taking the Lord's Supper, there should, mo there should not be just a, a leisurely kind of eating and drinking. Not just an apathetic, like, oh, it's that part in the service. Oh, where am I at in the bulletin? Oh, what's going on around me? No, give some time and consideration to what we're doing. I know that we do it each and every week, but that's because we believe a benefit accrues to us each and every week we do it.
It also means that there should not be any leisurely contemplation of sin. When we come to the Lord's table, we should come with preparation. We should come with expectation that God will meet us there. A supper of participation, a supper of consecration, and finally, a supper of proclamation. Paul says in chapter 11, verse 26, that when we eat this supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This supper structures the entirety of redemptive history from the death of Christ until His return. Paul here in 1 Corinthians 11 is actually quoting the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 26 on the very night when He was betrayed. And he says, Jesus says that when we eat this supper, we're supposed to remember. Look again at verse 24. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What does this remembering actually encompass? We remember first that this was the meal that Jesus ate with his disciples. But more than just thinking about it as a historic reality, we remember this meal like the ancient Israelites remembered the Passover meal. When Israelites, after they had gone through the Exodus, would sit down for their yearly observance of Passover, they would eat and drink and they would remember God's deliverance of their forefathers and their foremothers there at the Red Sea. But one of the things that they did as they remembered is they understood that they were being wrapped up into that same generation. That it wasn't just something that they had a fond memory of, but by that act of remembering, they were there. They had experienced the salvation of their God. They had seen God work to rescue their, His people with His own strong right hand. Friends, the same thing happens for us. When we remember, we recognize, we declare that that work that Jesus did the night that He was betrayed, it wasn't just for another group. It wasn't just for an ancient people. It was for us. That's not all. We proclaim the Lord's death until He returns. Jesus told His disciples that night that He would not eat of that meal again until the kingdom came. And so as you and I eat, we're prodding one another to look forward to that fulfillment. We do a, a lot of weddings here, so one great analogy is to think about the difference between your rehearsal dinner and your wedding feast. You remember when you got married, if you've been married or you've gone to participate in weddings, the day of your rehearsal comes and after a full day of preparation, and in my case, in Sarah and I's case, man, we are driving all over San Diego picking up stuff. 
hauling it to the place where we're going to have the, the dinner. My dad's setting up a bandstand, hanging lights, all kinds of different things. Finally, the night comes or the afternoon comes for the rehearsal itself. And what you do is, at a rehearsal is you practice walking. That's what you do at a rehearsal. Uh, Kelly Peacock is our wedding coordinator. She and I, we, we walk people back and forth on this aisle over and over again, making sure they know how to do it. And at the end of a lot of wasted time, at the end of a lot of laughter, you leave and you gather in a hall or you go to a restaurant and there you eat with your closest family and friends. In many ways, you are only the person you are because of the people at that table. <laughs> Over there, that's my Aunt Ray. There's, there's my best friend Dave. There's my mom and my dad, my future in-laws. You can only know and identify yourself as you stand in relation to them. But that meal, while celebratory, is not the wedding feast. There is more to come. And the same is true for this supper. It's a meal on the way. It's a signpost pointing forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We remember, we proclaim, but we're not necessarily doing it for the people out in the world. We're proclaiming among ourselves. We're reminding one another. In fact, it's one of the best things that we can do as the body of Christ for one another. When we remember, when we proclaim, we are giving one another the encouragement that we need, especially for those of us who are suffering. This is how we preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another. We're looking at that bread, we're looking at that wine, we're looking at one another, we're saying Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ is coming again. And friends, that is the message that we so desperately need to hear and believe. Because it's only that good news that will enable us to face another day of our pilgrimage with joy and gladness. Knowing that God is calling us forward. He is drawing us to himself. And he is providing for us along the way. Let's pray. Father, we long for that day that we will sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, but until that day, we're grateful for your grace and mercy meeting us along the way, feeding us with Christ so that we might be strengthened by his own heavenly life. Do that work, we pray in Christ's name, amen.